Hello, this is Melissa, and it is the 21st of January, 2024. And I hope that you are all surviving the bleak midwinter. Here last Monday, we had some snow that lasted for a day. And there were no disasters that I know of. We're back to mostly above freezing temperatures. I wanted to mention that that you did hear me, and I got a few donations last week and several orders. And I spent yesterday printing and punching holes and binding books, and it felt good because not only am I getting a little closer to my goal, but that's six more people that are going to be reading Alan's books. So I thank you for that. I, I think if we, if you, if we, the collective we, if you can do this again next week, I am going to meet my goal here. I also wanted to mention no guitar lessons for me, because obviously if I can't pay my tax bill, I can't afford guitar lessons. But... My first self-teaching session, I was tuning the guitar and I broke a string. And I thought, oh, that's a bummer. But I remembered that Alan used this whirling thingy tool to loosen the strings and take them off. And so I watched a YouTube video on how to use the whirling thingy tool. (laughs) And I... That was my first lesson, restringing the guitar. So success there. I will persevere, and that's that. But thank you again for your support. I appreciate it, and I hope that you will continue. On a very sad note, I want to let you know that last Sunday morning, the 14th of January, Siv Tov passed away. I did a real history in December with Siv. It was entitled Norwegian Christmas. And Siv had, has been a long time listener and wrote Alan for years and kept up the correspondence with me. And in August, she wrote me an email that was just chatty and it was talking about Christmas traditions. And I wrote her back and I said, I think that would be a really great special episode for Christmas Real History. Would you be willing to do that with me? And she said, yes, I would. Well, in, in the unfortunate way that life works for me here, it was actually November before I wrote her again. And I didn't hear from her. So a couple of weeks later, I wrote again and said, I, I really do want to do this this Christmas talk with you. And eventually, she wrote back and said, yes, she would like to do that. And we arranged a recording time on the 18th of December. And right off the bat, when we spoke, she said, I have been given two months to live. And I started crying, and she said, 
I don't want you to cry. And she told me about NHS, just, I don't know how to say it, mumbling for sure, but worse. You know, the initial thing is it's in your head. You know, you're not, you don't really feel what you say you feel. And then misdiagnoses and, and not giving her the tests that she thought that she needed. And eventually, by the time she did receive proper tests and a diagnosis, she was far advanced. And even in December, she said, I'm, I'm even with that prognosis, I'm still fighting because I have so much life in me and so much to live for. And she said, I don't want to talk about this, though. I don't want to talk about NHS corruption or the fact that I'm dying. I just want to talk about Christmas. And I, I just will say that that her courage amazed me. She had gotten into reading Marcus Aurelius' meditations, not so much for the political leadership aspect of it, but because when you are faced with something like that and you find words, the, the, the comfort and inspiration that we get comes from different sources. And the writings there that that talked about all of the things that we all go through in common, which include dying and death. And she found meaning there in how to approach what was inevitable with courage and bravery and real humanity. And right up until the end, she just wanted to share what she loved, a little bit about gardening and a lot about Christmas, which meant so much to her and her family. It was about tradition and family. And those of you who wrote before last week, I had shared all of those comments with Siv's daughter, and her daughter told me that that she had read them to Siv, and Siv heard and appreciated it. And the comments that came in after, I also sent to her daughter and those are appreciated I really liked how her daughter put it she said Siv has returned to the source and I find her inspirational the way that she dealt with this bad news a young woman younger than me and way too young to go but she had courage and dignity and she even said fortitude, and that she did have. And I'll be watching that episode every Christmas and thinking about Siv and family and tradition. These orders, which I'm not accustomed to that volume now, and I will say, too, that in Canada we were able to use a printer um, a, a printing service and you know, we could just order the books and then go and pick them up and everything is more expensive in Canada than in the U.S. except as it turns out printing books and so when I returned here and discovered the outrageous cost of, of printing a book 
about fifty dollars. You know, do, <laughs> so I I do that myself, and that kept me busy, and I. I had a few other things to deal with, so I did not really have time to think too much about today's Redux, but fortunately for me, a listener suggested one last week. And this is a blurb from September 22, 2019. The psychological knavery of technique slavery from school to climate catastrophe trained by rote, fearful, desperate, damaged cultures continue to vote. And here in the U.S., that's timely because we're going into this big, disgusting election cycle, and that is all that we will hear about for the next nine months. I won't cover too much um, in this intro what Alan went into. I, you will obviously see the timeliness of what he talks about in perpetual war and also damaged cultures. I am going to probably cut it after about 35 minutes, although there's one little section there on porting down and chemical testing on populations that I may put back in there. But I encourage you, if you like, to listen to the entire audio, and I will put up a link for that. But after about 35 minutes, Alan got into the topical news of the day, which was, guess what, Jeffrey Epstein. And other things, but, you know, deja vu, eh? <laughs> 2019 to 2024, and we're talking about Jeffrey again. So those links, for the most part, I, I did notice a couple of dead links, but they, the, the material is still up, and I will link to where you can find all of those old links, and then I'm going to put up a few new ones today. I just wanted to do a really, really quick survey of a couple of news items that I thought were worth touching on. I follow the substack of... Dr. William Magus and he and his team, he does have a team which he acknowledges put out a good piece yesterday or two days ago actually here on the 19th mRNA vaccine induced turbo cancer tsunami is underway and it's driven by young people. American Cancer Society is engaging in a limited hangout Reality is much, much worse. New cancer diagnoses in the U.S. are expected to top 2 million for the first time in 2024, driven in large part by an alarming increase in cancers among younger Americans, according to new American Cancer Society data. They talk about the types. It says here doctors are trying to figure out why they're seeing more patients, more young patients with cancer. Colorectal cancers are presenting with more aggressive disease and larger tumors at diagnosis. Now that is an interesting thing of the last several years is that, or especially the last couple of years, is that people are presenting with, with larger tumors right at diagnosis. 
And I recently, I mean, just very, very recently, lost a, I would call a friend, but at least a, a dear acquaintance to one of these fast-acting tumors that was large upon diagnoses. Now, this is a very long article with a lot of graphs, which are worth looking at, and then referring back to Ed Dowd's UK death and disability trends, specifically for malignant neoplasms. But I'm going to scroll down to the very bottom of the substack here. And he said, my take, COVID-19 mRNA vaccine-induced turbo cancer tsunami is well underway. And as I documented in a recent substack, all the big pharmaceutical players are buying up smaller cancer therapy companies and positioning themselves for 2025. The, he, he accuses, quite rightly, the medical oncology community of just having their heads completely buried in the sand. Now, one of the segments that I am cutting out here Alan mentioned one of the Sackler, the, the elder Sacklers who has passed away, Mortimer Sackler of the Sackler dynasty. And I have mentioned a book that I read last year called Empire of Pain. And the Purdue Pharma, the Sackler family pharmaceutical company, was, is, there's no other way to say it, but clearly and almost solely responsible for the opioid crisis in the United States and beyond. So I looked in to see the, the very latest of what is going on with the Sackler family because they have been under steady lawsuit attack for quite a, quite a long time. And the most recent thing, I could not find a fresh update, but I will link to something that came out in early December of last year. The U.S. Supreme Court scrutinizes controversial opioid crisis settlement that would give Sackler family immunity. And of course, the Sackler family wants immunity because, you know, they want to keep their ill-gotten loot for themselves. And so, you know, they're, they're bankrupt. The bankruptcy means that they can make this settlement and a lot of money, but a drop in the bucket to what they're worth, would go out to settle. It would go to states. It says here, states, local governments, and Native American tribes. The bankruptcy deal in question would have the Sackler family personally pay out between $5.5 billion and $6 billion over 18 years. The deal also sets aside $700 million to $750 million to pay individual victims and families of victims. But just think about this for a moment, because these billions are going to states, local governments, and Native American tribes. And in this kind of bureaucracy, there's a lot of 
um, verifiable corruption, but, you know, money just goes missing. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And considering how many hundreds of thousands of people have lost their lives and still struggle with addiction, 700 to 750 million is really nothing. But and the way that this deal was structured is we'll do this but we we will not personally be on the hook for the money. And some body called the U.S. Trusteeship said, no, this sets a constitutional precedent that is not good. Individual people should be able to sue the Sackler family for damages. So as far as I know, this may still be in front of the Supreme Court. But I was not able to find anything more recent than that. On to the Middle East. I just saw a little quote from President Herzog of Israel. And he called Iran the center of an empire of evil. I'm just going to give you a brief rundown, just the just a few little things that I saw that are going on. First of all, the dead as a result of this Israel-Gaza war is over 24,000, but that seems to my recollection to be what it was a couple of weeks ago, so I don't think we can trust that statistic. But there's something going on everywhere right now in the Middle East. The Houthis, the Yemeni rebels, this is what they say, they will continue standing by their brothers in Palestine. They are saying, we don't care about your rage. We don't care about whatever you do to us. We will continue our support and resilience with Palestinians until Israel stops its war on Palestine. I'll put up that article and you can read it for yourselves because what I'm trying to do is just give an overall temperature check in the Middle East. A few days ago, someone sent me a tweet and this was a member of the Israeli Knesset and it said that it was filmed on January the 6th, 2024. And a member of the Knesset was just in a rage he said, blood is on all of your hands because of your accursed occupation. And looking at some of the comments on that tweet, someone said, I believe this is Ayman Ode, who is one of ten Arab or Palestinian members of the Knesset. Now, someone was complaining that the video was older than the poster was led to believe, and he said, so what? It doesn't make it less important or less true. And being six months old actually makes it more damning. And that is an interesting thought there. I saw this article from The Guardian. Cyprus faces backlash over use of British bases to bomb Houthis. 
President accused of allowing country to become a target because of complicity in bloodshed of Gaza. So they've had a lot of protesters out on the streets saying that the government's policies and these military bases are endangering them. On Tuesday, the Cyprus government spokesperson, Konstantinos Letiem Biotis, emphasized the eastern Mediterranean island was not involved in any military operations, intimating that under the base's treaty of establishment, the UK was not obliged to inform Cypriot authorities about activity in the facilities. The government is in constant communication with the UK within the framework established in relation to the base's use, he said. Okay, let's just look at that there. The UK does not have to tell the Cyprus government what they do on their military base. Then he goes on to say, the government is in constant communication with the UK within the framework established in relation to the base's use. So they're in constant communication to glean nothing since the British don't have to tell them anything. It's just unbelievable the kinds of things that you get in these articles. And that takes me to one of the next kind of ridiculous things that I saw. I saw an article on the tunnels of Gaza. And this has been interesting to me for a while, and I'll get back to that. But what it was, it was from Reuters, and it was an elaborate series of artists rendering, very artistic, very comic book pretty, uh, showing you how you descend into these tunnels, what it's built. They say there's like 350 miles of them. And it immediately put in mind went after 9-11, I saw artist renderings of the tunnels in Afghanistan. And I thought at the time, this is the most ridiculous thing that I've ever seen. If an artist has the information, the visual information to draw it, then surely video footage or photographs of these elaborate tunnels in Afghanistan could be supplied, but they weren't. And that is what we have with the tunnels in Gaza. We're shown over and over the same openings, the same little series of tunnels, um, a little graffiti change here and there, but mostly what we get are these drawings and the assertion that this is going on. And it made me think... How is such an elaborate series of tunnels built under the watchful eye of Israel's Iron Dome and all of that security? How does this happen? One article that I saw was talking about the latest tunnel opening that was uncovered. And this is the one that has led to this series of exposés on them, and this was at the Erez Crossing, which is really the only pedestrian crossing from Gaza into Israel. And an interesting aside there is that that pedestrian crossing is always being closed and then opened again because of protesters. And what I found 
really interesting was an article from September the 28th that the Eras Crossing had been open or had been opened that day after being closed for a week. And the Palestinians were protesting it because many of them depend um, for their livelihoods on being able to walk into Israel to work. And because of protests and skirmishes and so forth, that crossing had been closed for a week. It was opened again on the 28th after some negotiations and talks and things seemed to be cooling down from a simmering pre-boil point to, okay, we're opening up the the crossing again and you can come in and work. And cut to on the 7th of October, just a little over a week later, you know, what happened. So that is just very interesting to me, that this elaborate series of tunnels that include concrete forms, you know, as if you're building a structure, because this one that they're just talking about there near the Eretz crossing is what they say is the biggest one discovered so far. You can drive a car through it. It's massive. It's, you know, got all kinds of, uh, you know, it's framed and then concreted. And it has all sorts of, they say, openings and places for people to descend um, on ladders. And I just find this remarkable. It is remarkable in that it is something that should be remarked upon, that a building structure that would require heavy equipment to tunnel, to bore it out, this is all done just a few steps away from the border crossing. Iran strikes Pakistan. And then now the latest is that they're making a, a, a peace again after this strike. And this one caught my eye because Pakistan tells Iran it wants to build trust after tit-for-tat strikes. It said they have to work on their issues. Um, they have to confront their issues on a spirit of mutual trust. We need to build back our trust. And that just made me think of everything that came out of this week's Davos meeting of the World Economic Forum. And the whole takeaway was trust. We need to build back trust. And then the discussions around that, what does trust mean? And from my point of view, it meant... We are supposed to trust whatever comes out of the mouths of the elite, and there is no free speech for us. That's rebuilding trust. And when taking a little peek at the Davos the different talks, there was about a half-hour talk that was conducted on disease X. And I wondered to myself if that was the disease formerly known as Twitter. So, yes, they've had some little operations for disease X, this unknown. You know, you've got your knowns and then your unknowns and your unknown knowns and, you know. So this is the unknown disease X that we're supposed to be prepared for while we build back trust. And then Israel strikes Syria. Just like the person who said... You know, this, this 
Palestinians standing up in the Knesset. It didn't really matter if it was six days old or six months old. The saga just goes on and on and on. And, and that is really the truth. That is what we see in the Middle East is a never-ending story. This morning, Neil Foster sent me something. It was just a little snippet of a talk that uh, General Bauer, I think he's the highest-ranking Admiral Bauer, sorry, he's an admiral, NATO Admiral Rob Bauer tells citizens, prepare for conflict. You need to have water. You need to have a radio on batteries and flashlight to make sure you can survive the first 36 hours of what? The first 36 hours of what? Well, Russia might invade Europe. So fear-mongering. So I went looking for this entire bit of it, and it was very, very hard to pull up from official sources. The video that has mostly been shown of this NATO admiral is telling civilians in the West to prepare for all-out war with Russia sometime in the next 20 years. And if, when I read that, I just think that NATO needs to get a better crystal ball. But I did ultimately find what looks to be legitimate footage of this admiral talking and the context of that statement when he was talking about citizens being prepared. He was responding to a Swedish general. He asked the Swedish population whether the country is prepared if the Russians were to invade it, just as happened in Ukraine. So these little seeds of even a bigger conflict are being planted everywhere. But just as I think many of us knew way back in October, this will escalate there is the list, and of course in this talk Alan talks about the list, and I leave you now with this portion of the talk, and again encourage you to digest more of it if you wish by visiting the archives at cuttingthroughthematrix.com looking at the new links that I put up on the website and on most of the other channels where I post. One last thing is book club. I had a very long talk with Darren yesterday. It was quite nice and we discussed some of the logistics of bringing a kind of a book club on tragedy and hope to you. And I think that what we're going to go with is a new telegram channel that is based off an existing one. So this will be a dedicated sub-site, and we will be feeding out information to all of the other various places, like Twitter, oops, excuse me, Disease X, <laughs> and um, then, of course, things will be found on the website. And the one thing that we discussed was if we would open this up for large groups, like a Zoom meeting, that kind of thing. And we've ultimate, we've decided that 
that kind of a platform is too hard to manage because people always have to be conscious to mute and unmute their microphone. Only one person at a time can speak. If 50 people come into the Zoom conference, you know, 50 people want to speak. And I think it might dilute the conversation. But you can have live chats on a platform such as Telegram. And I think that what we would do is if people express an interest in joining the conversation, then we can include you in that way. This first little talk that Darren and I are going to do on the first section, which was roughly 105 pages, we will record something next week and put it up on the weekend. And the only other little thing that I thought I would share on this is that we're sort of looking at this as... Darren and I want to be able to talk as long as we want to to cover the ideas, you know, I mean, within reason, but to cover some of the thoughts and, and ideas that we've had from reading this segment. What we think we'll do is split this up into smaller portions. So, again, I think the main hub will be this Telegram channel. But that way you can take it in bits and bytes, as it were. You can start off with a little snippet here that might catch your interest, and then you can dig deeper into the conversation. And I think that just considering people's time constraints, this is a good way to go with it. That there will be a variety of different ways that you can interact and gather the information that we're pulling together for you, and including the fact that a, law, a listener wants to do some little snippets of Alan talking about Carl Quigley, and those will go up in video form. And one last thing on this, unlike some of the other things that I do, like these illustrated redux and the illustrated real history and the excerpt series that which I don't do but the the excerpt series that go up that are heavily illustrated this won't be that so sorry for those of you who have to have lots and lots of visual images and I'm not mocking that but I am truly sorry but the constraints of time won't allow that but I think if you you know want to train your ears to listen then there will be interesting things being discussed so that is it and I I wish you all a very good week I thank you for your support which is really crucial it's necessary, and I appreciate it. And my deepest apologies that I cannot keep up with correspondence. I try, but I seem to run two to three months behind no matter how hard I try. And that's just ridiculous, but it's just me. So, thank you. Hi, folks. I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 22nd of September 2019. I wonder who else out there is thinking they're, they're living in some sort of Groundhog Day over and over in some respects, because what happens is, is so similar to things that have happened before in different areas like warfare and so on. But when you look into the techniques of building up to create wars, and always remembering that in true Machiavellian style, 
it's a very old technique. You must always, always get something to justify going to war with someone else, if they're not invading you, that is. And so you always got to get, oh, here's the event, bang, there you go. Real or, or imaginary doesn't matter, as long as you publicize it properly. And you do that by before any event or, or artificial event or fake event actually is told is, or appears to have happened, you build up an, an animosity towards those people by saying they've got animosity towards you. They they really hate you, you see. And then it means they hate us. And you keep building that up over and over and over and until the event happens, the standard event is supposed to have happened, and then next thing you know, you're, they're off to war, as it was planned, of course, long beforehand. And, and that's a standard, standard, simple technique of doing it. It's quite fantastic to, to see it happening over and over again, with this, pretty well the same scenarios, really, you know. And this time, of course, they must get around. I mean, I personally think Trump was put in to hurry up and get get the list over and done with, at least the ran part of it, because Hillary basically, and when, when she was in the State Department before that under Obama, and a group of them there with Madeleine Albright and so on, they'd been using proxy armies with different fake names, supposedly to do with ISIS and ISIL and ICE and yada yada yada. But they were mercenary armies. They were getting funded and equipped from the West. And I know this because I read all the articles on the air for years when it was all happening by all the usual official outlets. And so it was documented that we were arming them and, and again, financing them and supplying all their equipment and foods and so on. To get rid of Syria, mainly at that time, they already got rid of Libya. And that started the mass migration because Libya was literally a, a bulwark against the the mass migration from the West. And, uh, and for, you know, it, it was well understood, but with all sides at the time, that Gaddafi had mentioned the United Nations too, that if they take them down, take down his country, he says you get ma- a massive flood into, into Europe. And that's what's happened. The reason it happened is because it was planned to happen, because nothing really occurs in this system, this big, big, incredible system of planning multi-layered strategies and so on, all working together. It doesn't happen by accident. And it was planned that way to change Europe, the face of Europe and the world eventually, because you remember the very old agenda to do with elimination of nations, for, for as an example. And nations, you prepare them for the withering away, as they call it, withering away of the nation state. That was a communist idea at the time. But it was the same idea that was run by maybe their mentors, for instance, living in London, who ran the Royal Institute for International Affairs, who wanted a world government too, and the CFR, another branch of the same organization. Under many, many names and different guises, they've catered for all sects of society and ethnic groups and religious groups and everything else. So it's well understood that this is how the world is run. And through all the free trade agreements that the same group uh, literally drafted up for governments to sign, and this is, this is le- legitimate, it's not, it's not some conspiracy uh, theory. The CFR, Royal for International Affairs, uh, with the group for the Pacific Rim regions, the Asian Pacific and so on, this is all the same organization. They drafted up the agreements for the United Europe 
to happen under free trade, an economic block. And the same thing was to happen with the NAFTA deal, which they've changed in the last year or so with, with uh, Donald Trump, because too many folk were using the, the name NAFTA and folk were, were beginning to understand what it meant. It, it's so typical, if you start to understand what's happening, they change the names of it to try to confuse you. You, you tell, there's a conspiracy. That's the conspiracy part of it. Oh, we, we didn't do it for that reason. It's, it just sounds better now, you know. But it's the same agreement that they've changed it into for, for the Americas. And it gets updated every year, and that's why you hear about the strife with, with the old agreement with Canada, Mexico, and the States, as they readjust who gets to what to sell what, to what price, to who, what country, and so on. Free trade is not free trade, you understand. I, I mentioned it so many times before, that free trade is, is monopolistic trade. It's, it's for a consortium run under of countries, a block of countries run under a single agency, uh, and that was the communist idea as well, by the way, and it's not a coincidence. But uh, they would decide uh, on different sects of society, farmers, even beekeepers, who would sell to which countries and how much, and how much the countries would have to import from each other in the same areas. So it, put, it literally put so many farmers out of business in Britain, and they all fell for the, the hype, or just expanding it, ready for massive selling of your butter and your cheese and your milk produce. And, and folk were told to take on mortgages. Same thing happened in Canada, by the way, for a similar reason, years ago. And then, of course, the free trade deal is put through, and then you find out, no, they cut your quotas and so on. You would import more from abroad or different countries, and, and that's how it's really done. And I say that movie was put out quite a few years back now. Uh, with Anthony Hopkins in it, uh, called Heartland. Uh, it's a, a, a kind of portrayal of what happened to farmers at that particular time in Britain, how their government sold them out. And it wasn't accidentally sold them. It's like they didn't understand. No, no, they were sold completely out by liars because we're run by, by secrecy and deception. That's how you rule people. You don't tell them the truth. You don't say to them, oh, by the way, all you farmers there, we're going to start making, making you put you out of business because we're going to start importing stuff from, from France instead and, and dairy line, etc. and so on. And that's how it's all done. It's all a rigged system. And for the corporations that manufacture anything at all, at all it's, it's a monopolistic system, completely monopolistic, where, the, where certain big biggies are, are given grants to, to trade across the, the block and, and other ones are banned from that you can't do it, you see. It's com- completely a con job. But it goes on and on and on, and we watch it going on and on and on, and then they come up with their, their fake little spats about, uh, oh, Trump wasn't happy with the, the deal, uh, and, or Canada was getting too much of this or that, and so was Mexico, etc. Well, that's, that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to meet every year and, and slang this stuff out, you see, under their agreements. So there's nothing unusual about it. That's the way it's set up. But we're living in a system, as I say, that you watch the same things over and over again. There are many ways to, of, of the war starting, the big war, and the one to, to finish off the list. And I've got a few countries to go, and you've got the Yemeni group on it too, and you've got Iran on it, and they must get them out of the way. That was all published in the 1990s by the, the, the group in the States at the time that Bush and a whole bunch of them were, were involved with, and he became, he became president, and he became his backers, and off they went to war. And it really has changed the face of Europe, 
and the Americas forever, really, North America at least, anyway, forever, because of the mass migration, the fallout, the incredible debt it has caused. And at the same time, all this was happening. You had, again, through free trade deals, the elimination of your manufacturing base inside Canada and the States. And they signed it over, just like the free trade deal in Europe. They signed over to Mexico, you see, uh, for the manufacturing for temporarily. And they called it the Mexican Corridor, where they set up all the factories. They moved them down there and set them up there. And then after that, once it got completely done with uh, China and agreed to move all the manufacturing to China, off it went there, and that was that. You, you, the, the governments that you think you elected were behind us. They all signed on to it to deindustrialize us all. I hope folk get that through their heads. These smiling liars that you elect, they do what the party tells them. And that's what they'll tell you. Well, I, I didn't like it, but you had to go with the party. Which really was the point of having having leaders for different constituents, different areas, going go to Parliament or Congress or whatever, because if they're supposed to speak for you, they should be they should be voting in any deal in Parliament or the Congress for you, not the party. And so it's a complete farce what we're living in. Uh, we're, we're living in a managed system where really the politicians know darn well not to ask questions. That lead to pretty well with more than just suspected conclusions. You don't ask questions if you want to get the ladder, you see. And psychopaths are awfully good at that. They'll, they, they, they hone in quickly to what's expected. And because they're natural actors, they can play the game quite easily. So anyway, we're deindustrialized and then we have an era right now of hyperinflation. It's getting to, it will get to hyperinflation. That's what it's planned to do. Not just by chance, and not just because uh, they, they screwed up with, with their accounting, as they always pretend that's what happened, or there's a slump. And all. No, it's because it's planned that way. Years ago, I remember talking about it, uh, even when uh, the, the last so-called crash was happening in 2007 and 2008, and, and they told her, no, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, we'll, we'll, we'll borrow money to tide us over all. And the, the government in Canada too said, oh wait, it's not going to affect us, our, our banks are solid, they're in great condition. And of course, you, when you delved into it, which I did, uh, I found out that the, the, all the biggies, and I got the list too from the government, had got bailouts from the US uh, Federal Reserve Bank, which is not really a federal one at all, it's private loan, but anyway, you don't have to pass gold or silver or even, you know, even note paper uh, to, to any country or any person or any government anymore. All you have to do is add a few zeros behind a number on a computer and, and that's what you then owe them, really, plus interest. And that's how, that's how you get bailed out, you see. So they've got special drawing rights for Canada and the states, the US banks but also other foreign banks too in other countries because the US Federal Reserve now is acting almost like a central bank for all the other central banks across the planet and at the time I mentioned it too because I, I really followed it so meticulously I knew darn well where it was going to go what they always do when they crash your economy and you crash your financial system is that they, they devalue the currency so you need more numbers of the currency 
to try and buy the same amount of stuff that half the amount of would have done before. And that's where we are now. We're paying about double what we did before, for, especially in Canada. It's very obvious, even in food. And the government even admitted that they'd given permission to the big food producers and meaning the big packagers and so on, the right to um, the middlemen to jack up all the food prices big time. And they've done it. I mean, butter now, a little thing about butter here now, is, is creeping up to, towards the $6 uh, mark and uh, a pound, uh, $6 a pound. Right now it's five-something plus tax because it's a processed food. In other words, it's been you know pasteurized and God knows what else to do to it before you end up with the finished product. But uh, they call that process. So you pay tax on top of the food now. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse. Well, this is not happening back. And it's not just because we, we have to pay back the money. That's part of it. Money is a tool of power. And the magicians that handle the bookkeeping for the central banking systems are the true, the true powerful ones, really. Working again for masters, but they get incredible payoffs for you know, doing their magic on the books, for instance, because don't forget, you're in a world system, and money being a source of power and a tool of power is obviously ruled by the powerful, who can, they can make themselves very rich very quickly and double their income with a few strokes of a, in a computer, you might say. And that's how the system is today, and no one's going to look into it for about them, where they get the cash from. Just as they don't look into where politicians get the cash from. Some of the politicians today are multimillionaires and they haven't done any work except being so-called elected as a public servant to something. Well, when you see what their income is supposed to be and what they end up uh, having after a few years, a very few years, they're not getting it all from their paychecks. Now, it's true in the U.S., and I'm sure other countries now too, in the U.S., they made it legitimate, legal. The politicians inside the U.S. can do insider trading. They get the the hot tips of where government's going to sink its money, and you can't lose in that kind of hot tip. The government will sink vast sums of money into money pits, regardless if even if they're failing. That's how they work in government systems, and that happens all the time too. So money is a source of power, it's a tool of power, and it's used by the powerful for their own big agenda. And, and the agenda is not to continue, it's never to continue the way it is here in the world, is it? Uh, you had an industrial era for quite a long time. It could have gone on for a much, much longer time, except that those who owned the world by then wanted rid of it from the West and to base it in China and the Far East and in India now too. Not just for cheap labor, but it's just time to do it. And they want to bring down all the Western countries and to austerity. And I gave the talks from the United Nations uh, talks on, on austerity, the coming austerity and so on. And the Council on Foreign Relations articles, etc. And all the big think tanks on how we have to bring the West into austerity. Austerity is a nice way of, they used to say in the middle of the 19th century, with the politeness that they'd have in conversation, the middle class would say, oh, you know, they're poor, austere child. Normally they'd say a poverty-stricken child, but it sounds better, austere, austerity. You're not, you're not in poverty, you're in austerity, you see. And uh, it sounds better. Poverty might make you have a bit of guilt twang 
that you for allowing it to even happen, you see. So you always camouflage it with the words that are used, just like you didn't have slaves in, in, in Britain, you had servants, you know. And servants were tied to the home that they looked after, or tied to the farms, as tenant farmers. And at least they were more, a bit more honest. In the Middle Ages, they called them serfs, you know, which really was a, a slave, basically. So you're bought and sold with land. And if you ran away before the plague hit, of course, when you ran away, they, they would catch you and force you back after torturing you and punishing you, or branding you, or, or killing you. That was the law. It wasn't until after you had the first big plague deaths across Europe and England, uh, when, again, it killed off so many of the, of the, the serf class, that they had to start thinking about actually giving them some kind of recompense and money to get them to go and work for them and give them a few rights. But they even tried to get away from them again, get it back from them once the things got going pretty well again. But that's what always happens, isn't it? But today, as I say, we're living through almost a form of, with the warfares coming up, because it's going to happen, you know that's on the list. The list is never forgotten. I don't think, I don't think they've ever put a war down that they wanted to have that they didn't actually ever do. There's always strategy involved for having the wars in the first place. It isn't just balance of power. And if it's, and if it's even to do with knocking out some kind of up and coming institution or country or whatever, we should leave, since we're paying for all, we should at least have the right to know who is going to benefit or, or whose behalf is it really on or for. Nothing is ever, ever honestly given to the general public. And I always remind myself once in a while of the war, the complete, utter war on society. Uh, a society that doesn't even know it's happening to them. They think that everything is quite natural. They think that, 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 that almost, um, and probably actually it is in some, some, uh, apparently in modern TV stations, where they've got live intercourse and some things. I said this would happen in the 1990s, mind you. And then they gave music television big time for the, the young, up and coming youngsters who were just, uh, whose hormones were just exploding, coming into birth and exploding at the time, to make sure that they would be hypersexualized to destroy the old system. That for at least it was never perfect, believe you me, of marriage and all the rest of it. But I tell you, I gave a much better solidity to society. And, it, and for folk who eventually got past the teenage years, it would give them more of a solid background for survival in family units as opposed to what they have today. As I say, I, I remind myself every so often by watching occasionally the scheme, the scheme, the housing scheme, they call them in, in places like Britain, and they call it the scheme that's made by the BBC, of the devastation around the big cities, in and around the big cities in Scotland, for instance. And literally, for me, I've got to always catch myself, because back in the 90s, I talked about what was to come, by, based on what I already knew and had studied and what was what I noticed was coming up. And I noticed a massive influx at the time, uh, an onslaught, I know it happened in different parts of England and Ireland too, of, of heroin just coming in almost unrestricted. And that, when that happens, it took planning for that to happen. It took coordination, 
between police departments and covert departments, two that always exist, most folk don't even know exist, it took a lot of planning and permissions and acceptance to allow that to even happen. And, and of course, it also meant that the big boys who were bringing the stuff in were all planned as well, for who they were and so on. And that was all understood of how to get it into the country. But heroin exploded, and it was so cheap. And it hit at the right time, and it was promoted at the right time by the music industry. It was so hip and cool, just like they had done it with hip and cool um, marijuana, Mary Jane, back in the, the 60s and 70s. But way beyond that now. Because now they were deindustrializing the countries even then in, in Scotland and in England. That was the plan as well. They'd already been through massive deindustrialization in the 1970s and through the 80s. And so you have this, this bereft of jobs, traditional jobs, all gone, just wiped out, vanished, exported. And the public were lied to about it, how it was happening. Oh, they're just closed down or you're led to, they expected you to disbelieve they went bankrupt or something. See, you would fill in the spots. They wouldn't tell you what happened. They were deliberately being put, put across the, the world by your tax money. Just as it happened again with China later on everywhere else and including Canada and the States. But to, to fill this void too of hypersexualized youngsters where marriage was going to be obsolete, it was planned to be obsolete. And men were degraded to the point that, that um, all entertainment pretty well poo-pooed men altogether and made a laughing stock out of them. They had done that for years, mind you, uh, from the American stations initially and then onto the British stations that copied all with their dramas, etc., and their comedies. Comedy is a big one that they do all, all these things through. And eventually you've got a society where there's, there's either no men or the men just sit quiet in the background and say nothing as the rest of it goes kaput. And the families are finished. And their children are on drugs. And this is a complete war. Culturally. Psychologically. All planned that way. And with the use of big pharma, of course, because they could get handfuls and handfuls of Valium on the streets or any other kind of drugs for that matter. And then government steps in to take up all the slack and all the, all the children who are completely hooked on drugs. Of all kinds. Until it's normal to have social workers assigned to every family pretty well. And then the, 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 the people who were growing up at that time, the 90s, hmm, are now the, the maybe, maybe a parent, if they've lived that long and survived, maybe a parent uh, themselves. And so, so with every, every generation it gets worse because there's no family values, traditions, or even the families themselves to, to, to help them out. They've been wrecked, absolutely wrecked. And in that housing, uh, that one called The Scheme, and the Scottish one, you'll see people who, uh, and they do have subtitles for those who can't make it out, what I mean, you'll see people struggling to understand. They, can't, they don't know what happened. They really don't know what happened. Because their, their everyday life is normal. To you looking, uh, looking at it, you'll see this is completely dysfunctional, with no hope. And you'll see them reacting, trying to build little community centers to get a community spirit going, things like that. And other things that are beyond band-aid techniques because the community centers were fine years and years ago for what they had then. Society's been wrecked even further since then. 
you won't get people sitting playing uh, dominoes <laughs> in this day and age, unless they're an old, old folks home, perhaps. You have to understand you're in a planned society, a managed society, wreck the society, bring in and increase social work departments and, and the pseudo-psychological experts, pseudo-science experts, I'd say, of the mind to take care of the slack. And, and they're as bad as the, the, the victims of all who are wrecked and their lives are wrecked. Parents looking at their children, the parents' lives are often wrecked and looking at the children whose lives are wrecked too. Everybody's just dysfunctional. And I'll tell you what it put me in mind of when I looked at it again. And I really mean this because it's startling and it's obviously, it's obviously what's happened. And it, it took me back to it in the 90s when I, I mentioned about what happens when society has been conquered, wrecked and destroyed. And back then, the analogy I made was, if you look at the, at the Indian society in, in Canada, you've got society, lots of studies done on it, where they themselves have tremendous alcohol and drug abuse. All the same problems, I'd say, that they have now everywhere else in, in Scotland and elsewhere. And, and Canada too, for every, every society. Uh, but but in, but the Indians, literally, uh, for them, are people who who had lived with the same kind of culture. No matter what you think of the culture or even the tribal warfare that goes on, on the fact is, they had purpose in life, personal purpose. And you would follow the tradition of the elders, and it didn't have to be complex either, by the way. And they had purpose. And they were mainly hunters, and that gave them purpose too. They're busy, busy, busy for survival. But one, and as Darwin said it too, and, and, and they understand this technique too by just by studying eugenics and evolution and all the rest of it, as they call it evolution. Uh, the fact is, if you wreck a society and bring them to the status of what they, what they used to call they used to call arrested civilizations ones who didn't go beyond a certain step or stage. Didn't mean that I mean, there's anything wrong with them. They were just stuck. Often they were completely self-sufficient. But you can't make a profit of people who are self-sufficient, can you? So we call them arrested civilizations. But when you take away their purpose and their cultural purpose and their connections to their ancestries, then they, 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 they just turn inwards on themselves and self-annihilate, basically. And that's what you're seeing in parts of Scotland and England and Europe and Canada too, by the way. Uh, coincidentally, at the same time, it's just somehow the nations uh, say that you can take all these different drugs and they're going to, they're going to make them, even all, all of them actually, legal eventually. You understand you're in a complete you're beyond the takedown stage. Now it's time to eradicate us. That's what's happening now. We're getting eradicated. Completely eradicated. Look at the cancer rates are up through the roof, for goodness sake. And the foods we're eating, we're not even allowed to know if they're even genetically modified or what kind of pesticides are used on them. We don't have the right to know that. And we accept that. That means we're gone. When we don't say, hey, <laughs> we demand. When you put yourself into the state of being dictated to by authorities, you're pretty well given up. You forget that these people who call themselves servants are supposed to serve you. But of course, in socialism, 
And that's why the elites and the wealth of this world picked socialism. Socialism is a, was, was, was planned by high levels of the middle classes who literally looked around them at all the poor and despised them and were afraid of them and thought they'd come out and start planning societies for them. Yeah, there'd be some do-gooders amongst them, but there was a lot of them, H.G. Wells is one of them, who had fear and contempt for the working classes. The fear part was that when he saw them passing their windows, going to these smelly, rotten factories, dirty factories every day, he, he, like many, I suppose, had a fear of maybe something terrible could happen and he'd have to join them. So you, you end up loathing that which you, you fear, you see. And that's where we're going today with all. But watching the annihilation happening with folk who have no hope at all, where the availability of all kinds of drugs, so cheap too, are, are beyond just simple proliferation. is planned proliferation and planned takedown, folks. Or believe you me, authorities... They can galvanize you into world wars when it suits them and take over everything, including the rationing of food, which they'll do again, by the way, eventually, under a similar kind of guise, not just a world war, but a different thing to get again. You've got to go into austerity, remember. But the fact is, they can galvanize and take over, over everything in society and every facet of society and production and the means of production and basic survival very quickly. And you think they couldn't stop the drugs? Do you really think, do you really believe that? (laughs) In a a system where they know everything about everybody, every single one of you, they know more about you than you know about yourself by the studies they've done on you. And they completely, they constantly do on you. But they just don't know who's come on, folks, eh? You're in the takedown phase. And that's why... Just like Brave New World, written in the 1930s, the early 30s. Not by a, a guy with a crystal ball, but Aldous Huxley, who, who mixed his family, but belonged to this, this managerial elite class. Who looked to all the, the common, popular people, they call it populism, and, and the popular people, the people who like popular music and popular, which was beneath them, of course. But they were quite open about it, that, that there'd be too many people, until his death, Aldous Huxley, along with his brother, and actually Julian, who was worse, uh, talked about the fear of overpopulation, of, of all the wrong kind of people. And people thought at the time, well, it wouldn't affect us in, say, in Britain. You know, you're thinking, thinking this guy's got something in common with you. No, they didn't. <laughs> you're, you're as much of a peasant as, as the people across the world in some supposedly third world country. That's it there. So anyway, they, they talked about it in Brave New World in the 1930s and, and how they'd bring in a system where the state would raise the children. It didn't mind, never mind the fact that they would literally engineer, genetically engineer the people, the right kind of people with the right genes, the gene replacements and all the rest of it, and to get the right categories of work distribution for different jobs from the intellectual to the menial. And they would breed them all different classes of them. And they would get lots of sex, hyper-sexualized, lots, every night. In fact, it's almost mandatory you had to have sex. But you, you would have a sterile relationship. There'd be no offspring. They even make it uh, taboo to have sex with the same person twice in a week. So promiscuity had to be shared, you see. 
uh, a lot of these ideas came from Plato and, and their public, where, where literally women would be, would be held in common. Well, women may object to that, so you don't tell them that that that, that they're all there to be to be shared around with everybody. You, you just tell them that they're they're free, you know, and uh, give them a paycheck and give them a, a, a culture that basically gives you exactly what you wanted to until they're they're all in common. You know? These things are not by chance; they don't happen by chance. And then you have. Again, in Brave New World, you have the primitive type who, who is born naturally outside. It's a few, uh, a few settlements of them outside the big protected cities, apart from the genetically modified ones, who are still wild. They're the wild ones, but because they're wild, they can still think. And they can point out the things that are wrong. And what's absent from it all is a sense of a great love and, 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 and it's not just happy, but love for things and great spiritual feelings and so on. That, 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 that those that are generally modified were laughed at. They, they thought this primitive guy who was brought in as a novelty and, a, and an experiment. They thought he was, he, he was quaint and all that with strange ideas about having real mothers and real fathers since they were all born in basically, as you recall, test tube types. They thought it was quaint. They'd have these strange notions. And he quotes Shakespeare and so on and, 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 and gives them stories about high emotion that they, they couldn't quite get grasp it because they're completely materialistic. They lived for the moment. That, that was their life. And then, just like John Dewey and others prescribed long before, and again, that's where a lot of the ideas came from, from, for Huxley's book. But, but John Dewey, um, and his school, of thought, they helped create the educational system for America and a good part of Europe, same groups. They would train the children that death was normal, and you, you would you'd be allocated a certain amount of years, and then you would die. And nobody would, would mourn, bemoan you dying. There'd be a celebration of, of you dying, and you would die humanely, you see. And now you're in an age now, today, where, where, when you hit a certain age, they want to euthanize you openly, quite op- very openly, and they're promoting, this is an agenda you're going through. This isn't the brainchild of professors who are living now, dreamed up themselves. They're following a script, and certain ones are selected to reaffirm the script to the public to get you used to the idea through repetition of it. And to, well, I guess I had to harm them eventually. And there you go. Just like the people in this scheme, this series in the BBC was talking about, Poor souls, they're trying to, just like they tried with the Indian reserves in Canada and elsewhere, where they're falling to drugs and alcohol and the rest of it, they're trying the similar things in Scotland, the people themselves. And it wasn't, it wasn't lack of money that was strictly responsible. There are so many of them are on welfare and have their houses paid, their rents and so on. And, and their food, and they have computers and TVs and all the rest of it, and they can afford to go out and so on. So it's so even unemployed. It wasn't just it wasn't just lack of money. It, it was purpose and function. The function of of man, woman, family, and society has been destroyed. And when that happens. And the family is destroyed, then the community is destroyed because each family, all the different families collectively are the community. And communities used to stand up, and I remember them standing up to, to bills that were passed by local governments and they, they, they would all go, oh no, you're not. And they wouldn't. They would listen. When you don't have that community anymore with good mindsets and, and logic and, and whose, whose minds can think straight enough 
when you don't have them to stand up collectively, uh, then those who are in control have won, you see. Before they, before they start the next round of whatever, they've already won. That's what, again, back to socialism, that's what H.G. Wells said. He says, we will eventually uh, re- re- annihilate the family until the individual will be talked down to by us, the government, straight up from government to individual, government to individual, and there'll be nobody around you, no, no kin to stand up for you, or community to stand up for you. That's what he said, and that's what they wanted, and Bernard Shaw wanted it too, for those who don't buy now. Socialism is an ordered planned society that makes the elite feel safer. And to be planned, everybody must be utterly predictable in it. That's why your soul observes it's got nothing to do with terrorism. Never did have anything to do with terrorism. See, we're in the destructive phase of society. Look around you. It's like a battlefield. This is an age where, again, they bring out their, their, their leaders at the right time as they're telling you to eat insects and so on, to save the planet. It's almost like, you understand, when a person is, is captured... A prisoner, for instance, and jailers uh, traditionally uh, were basically psychopathic, cruel people who enjoyed what they did, (laughs) more so at one time, eh? And you'll see it happening too, like the videos that came out about the U.S. torturing people in Iraq, for instance, and in prison systems. They're horrific things, and they become kind of immune to it. But, the, but there's a something about taunting and humiliating people who are defenseless. But that, what, what they, even waterboarding, which was the first thing that the troops were taught to do when they were, when they were catching, that was, a, you know, it was a death penalty by the U.S. on Japanese who had done that to, to prisoners of war. It was a death penalty if that was found during the, they had tribunals in World War II. And yet when the Bush system took, did Gulf War One, and then, in, you know, Desert Storm, then Gulf War One, and then, and so on. And then into, uh, the Sun's term as well. Waterboarding was the priority. All the, what happened? All the values that used to horrify you are out the, you know, out one, and it's all okay. Well, you see, you gobble this up for entertainment, you have your whole life long. And that's why it works so well. But your government, so you better go back. I'll just touch on them before I get off here. I've done so many articles over many, many years on what governments have done to the people. Never mind giving, giving syphilis to, to the to people in, in parts of the U- U.S., black people in the U.S. at one point. Telling them, they were giving them treatment for it. They gave them free blood testings. Oh, you've got, no, they didn't have syphilis. They gave them the syphilis and they, know, they noted down who they were giving it to and followed them to, to, to go untreated to see how it would affect them and take them down. That was your government system and CIA involvement too. They, they designed all this stuff. This strange CIA. You have to wonder if they're even American. What are they? What are these characters? So anyway, that's one thing they did. They also sprayed the radioactive material over places too, over, over whole towns. Poor towns, of course. And so did Britain. Anyway, I'll, I'll just touch on a few of them. Just a few of them, but they're going into any depth tonight. Forest spraying concerns. Mixed reviews on mill support, it says. This is Sudbury. Spraying of the forest with chemicals is unacceptable. Attention to fellow fishermen, hunters, nature lovers. Just the folk that live there, too. It's time to speak to protect northern Ontario's public forests. 
multinational corporations, ECOM and RIAM, R-Y-A-M, are proposing another decade of spraying non-essential toxic chemical herbicides in the Timmins, Sudbury and campus casing regions. You understand, we're in a, this is all to get, this will bring down a, a much quicker death rate, which again ties into the takedown of society after this long war. And so many folk today are so mind-bombed with the drugs that they're on, never mind the, 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 the strange floating through society that's falling apart, you know, that we're all doing. Uh, but the drugs that they're on and, and their children are on and so on. Makes it much easier to take you down physically now, isn't it? Because it is depopulation time. I hope you understand that. Is when they take away treatment from hospitals and they, they say it's much cheaper and more efficient to just give you a euthanasia pill. Uh, and after all, your standing in society isn't that great. We don't really need you. Why don't you just die? That's happening, folks, daily here. And you accept and you accept and you accept. Just like it used to be prohibitive to torture prisoners or you gave them the death penalty for waterboarding at the end of World War II to your enemies, and then you end up being the main proponent for it. That's what's happened here. Degradation of culture makes much, much easier. And you've all been degraded in a hyper-sexualized entertainment system with all the instant messaging that's going on and new terms to grab and just follow. Well, I guess, well, maybe that's okay, you know. Until then, until you're, 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 what was normal is facing 180 degrees to what it was not long ago, folks. Mm-mm-mm. I guess all I've got time for really, yeah, I could go on and on and on, but I, I prattled on and something else before I started, right? Anyway, uh, some food for thought. You're living through a, a planned system, folks. Nothing happens that hasn't been planned and often published before it happens. Often long ago. That's why you forget it. You forget all about it. Oh, that has it. So you forget it. And then it happens. You remember, you can help me out by buying the boots and discs, cutting through the matrix.com or donating. Remember, you can donate by sending cash or checks or international postal money orders if you're outside Canada. So from Alan Watt, Interior of Canada, it's good night to me, your God, or your God's go with you.